Thank you. Jeremiah 31 is one of those passages that we need to uh, have. In our now, now it's unmuted. It's always something. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to the end of this semester and this uh, semester's discussion of covenant theology, as we have looked at your word seeking to understand how it is laced together, what are the undergirding structures that help us to understand revelation that we have between the pages of Scripture, we have uh, been blessed. I have been blessed in this study in uh, the course of this past semester. And I pray for our time tonight that as we try to tie things together, we try to understand particularly this great new covenant and what it means for us. We pray that you would uh, do a great work by your Spirit in our hearts even tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to move relatively quickly tonight. Um, our goal is to wrap things up in regard to covenant theology and talk specifically about the new covenant, uh, the passage we just read there. And in order to do that, I don't just want to talk about the new covenant and then say amen and be done. I want to uh, kind of wrap things together. And so we have uh, been talking through the course of this entire semester about the uh, topic of covenant theology, of course. And we started off um, thinking about the covenant of redemption. We said that's a, a covenant, intra-Trinitarian, pre-temporal covenant. We still goofy or are we good? We're good, all right. I may be goofy, but they're good. <laughs> covenant of redemption, this is a discussion, a covenant made uh, between members of the Trinity uh, before creation. And uh, in there they said they, were, uh, they agreed that the Father would elect a people give them to the Son, the Son would do the work to redeem those people, and the Spirit would apply that work to those people. And uh, so we call that the covenant of redemption. And it, this is, take, takes place outside of time. This is a conversation, an agreement, a covenant between members of the Trinity before creation. But then we looked to begin to talk about covenants that took place in time. And we talked about the covenant of works, and uh, we discussed that. We said that that is a, a covenant between God and Adam established uh, at the, the, the point of creation that said, Adam, if you do this, you will live. And instructions were given, etc., cetera, uh, so that life would be attained um, uh, if uh, that covenant had been kept. And of course, that covenant was not kept. We are introduced to the topic of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace uh, takes place within time. That is an agreement essentially, or it's, it's carried out in time. It's an agreement uh, essentially between uh, father and son um, where, and, and the elect that are included in the son. So you, you could, you, it could be said that it's between God and the elect. It's really God and Christ and the elect then are called into Christ where the 
credit for a completed covenant of works would be given to those who are united with the Son by faith. So that uh, this covenant of works, though it was failed and, uh, by Adam, and we, of course, are in Adam. We are born under a broken, broken covenant of works, bearing the consequences of that. The covenant of grace uh, promises that there will be one who will keep a covenant of works, will obey God, and thus um, have the, conse- the, the results, the benefits, the, the spoils that come from that to give to all of those who are united to Him by faith. He accomplishes the covenant. We get the rewards for that. These are the theological covenants that we've talked about. In, um, in our time here, but these are the less explicit ones. We've, we've seen great evidence for each of these as we've talked about uh, our time here, but when we think of covenants, uh, we might typically think of some different covenants in the Bible, and we need to um, take note of those. And so, first of all, we could think of the Noahic covenant, and that's the first one uh, that we read about in the Bible um, Noah, Genesis 6, Genesis 9, that time frame. And we read about uh, the promise made there where after the flood, uh, God tells Noah, I will no longer uh, destroy all flesh. I will never again destroy all flesh by means of flood. Um, Though you deserve it, I'm not going to do that. I will withhold that. But for your part, Noah, who represents all creation, remember, all living beings, not just the family of Noah, though we are all the family of Noah, but even all of all living beings are governed in this way so that there is to be a protection of life, there is to be a promotion of family, right? And so you have that. We talked about that in the Noahic Covenant. Now, I've put it under this category of covenant of works, not because it is itself a covenant of works. It's a promise uh, with some, some stipulations uh, made by God to Noah and the rest of us. But the reason I put that there is because both of these govern creation, All of creation. So when Adam fell, it wasn't just Adam. And it wasn't even just all of humanity. Right? Sin entered the world and thorns started growing. Right? So there's, there's an impact upon all of creation that happens here as a result of the, the, the broken covenant of works. And the Noahic covenant is given uh, to all of creation also to govern that so that there would be a limitation on loss of human life, etc., so that we can see that both of these work together in this sense, governing creation. Well, of course, that's not the last covenant that we run across in Scripture. We read also uh, about, just a few chapters later, we read about the Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, we saw that in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and and talked about that uh, for quite a while, and we've been preaching on it, etc., But uh, in that covenant, there were a couple of things that we saw happening. Um, We saw God making promises to Abraham. Uh, We saw that there were expectations placed upon Abraham that he was to circumcise his male offspring. And and so God was going to accomplish his purposes of blessing, bringing blessing to uh, to, uh, all the families of the earth through Abraham. But an individual or an individual's family could remove himself from that by, by not being obedient. So you'd have those who would not circumcise their children, et cetera. And so they would be cut off from their people. So though God made a promise and God will fulfill that promise, corporately, individually, uh, uh, members could opt out of that, right? We saw next uh, the Mosaic Covenant. 
And we saw that there's a connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. That the Abrahamic covenant uh, made promises of a land. The Mosaic covenant also made promises of a land and talked about uh, further details about what that obedience looks like. It's not just circumcision and walk blamelessly before me. There is a spelling out, a developing of um, what that obedience is going to look like. We saw that as the development of the law of the land. So um, we mentioned the Abrahamic covenant, which kind of leads naturally to the Mosaic covenant. Then after that, we saw the further development in the Davidic, the Davidic covenant. So um, we see that these, these covenants were all tied together. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, what they have in common, the things they have in common. And there is land promise and all those sorts of things. But but what we end up seeing is that the Davidic covenant ends up kind of identifying, it identifies the king in this land. The Mosaic covenant gives the law of the land. The Abrahamic covenant gives the people of the land. And, and there's more to it than that. But you see that they, they work together to make that, um, uh, that covenant uh, a, a bigger, fuller picture. And each one sort of leads naturally to the next. And this Davidic covenant was interesting because it made the statement that um, as goes the king, so, go, so goes the whole nation, that, that the Davidic covenant made it so that their king represented the people. If the king would obey before God, there would be blessing that would go to the entire nation. If, on the other hand, the king failed in his task and became an idolater, um, dishonored the temple, etc., etc., there would be cursing upon the nation based upon the action of the head, the federal head. And so um, we saw that those are all tied together. But what's interesting is there's also the promise made there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there will be a descendant of David whose throne will be forever, will be established forever. And so there's a hint of something beyond that in the Davidic covenant, right? And so the Davidic covenant points uh, to something new, points beyond itself. And actually we saw that the Mosaic covenant points beyond itself, uh, gives the idea, the expectation that given the, uh, the laws and all the sacrifices that go when you break the law, the implication, you know, how many years would it take for you to realize, I'm going to keep sinning. I keep having the off, to offer this sacrifice. And so I'm offering the sacrifice, and, then, and you think, well, okay, I've, I've come to realize my own sin. I've come to realize that that blood must be shed for, uh, to pay the penalty for my sin, but how can the blood of a goat count for my sin? I'm of a completely different nature than a goat. I'm, I'm of greater value than a goat. And so there, there develops this understanding of, of there needs to be a sacrifice of adequate stature and purity to shed His blood so that we can be forgiven of our sin. So you've got this promise, this developing promise of something that goes beyond uh, just itself. The same thing with the Abrahamic covenant. It looks beyond itself when you've got the promise of uh, a seed that is going to give blessing to all of the families of the earth. The offspring, the seed, which of course Paul picks up on and says that seed is Christ. And so you see that these work together, but you see they also point beyond themselves. Well, I didn't put this under the covenant of works. I didn't put it under the covenant of grace, but it points to the covenant of grace. So I'm going to 
put kind of a parenthesis around that in a sense, just so that we understand I'm not intending to put it under one of these two categories, though we see that it points that way. And we see that, of course, when we talk about law, there's element of works there. Do this and live, okay? But, but it's pointing beyond itself to something different. I said that these covenants govern creation. What do these covenants govern? They govern Israel. Okay? They govern Israel. So the Noahic covenant allows for creation to be perpetuated, provides the context in which these things can happen. Ultimately, this nation of Israel becomes the womb of the Messiah. The purpose of each of these covenants, the ultimate purpose of these covenants, points beyond themselves and points to what I'm going to argue is the covenant of grace. That brings us to this new covenant that we just read about in Jeremiah 31. We read about it in the New Testament as well. We're going to cover it. But we saw, we saw that these covenants govern uh, creation. These covenants govern Israel. And this covenant, or these covenants, we could say it's this covenant, governs the uh, uh, Christ's kingdom. Right? And so we have this new covenant governing that particular kingdom. So we have three different realms, as it were, and they're being governed by covenants. Okay? So that's how we're understanding all of these things to be related together. These are the theological overarching covenants we began by discussing, and then we work through in detail, uh, or in some detail anyway, these more explicit covenants. And this is how um, I'm saying they fit into this broader theological structure. Okay, so that kind of gives you a map to look at. With that map in mind, um, just as a very quick review of this old covenant, this whole thing here, this nation of Israel, the covenants that, that form the kingdom, the theocratic kingdom of Israel, we call it, uh, we're calling that the old covenant. We see the Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. God calls Abraham. He promises him that he will give him a land and offspring and through him will bless all the families of the earth. God requires obedience of Abraham and his descendants in that they are to circumcise all their male infants as a sign of the covenant. An individual failure to do that results in being cut off from the people. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Mosaic covenant, through Moses, God promises Israel they will enjoy a unique relationship with God. They will be a kingdom of priests and they will enjoy the land. And God also gives the law of the land, which specifies the obedience that He requires of His people. Punishment for covenantal unfaithfulness is being cut off from that land. And then thirdly, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God designates David as king of Israel and covenant head. David and his offspring who sit on his throne uh, will have his throne established, will enjoy rest and prosperity in Canaan, as well as the presence and protection of God. The king is to guard God's temple, he's to keep God's law, and he's to represent God's people. And the Davidic covenant also promises a future one who will have his throne established forever. So you can see um, these all point beyond themselves. They have their own function, 
Um, it can be said that Israel is the womb of the Messiah, uh, but we have uh, these covenants going together to govern the nation of Israel, though they as well point beyond themselves. And with all of that as background, all of that as the introduction, then we come to <clears throat> Jeremiah 31. So you've got Jeremiah 31 open already. And uh, we're going to work, work through this and just see the highlights of it, the main points of this new covenant, okay? So reading through it again, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So first of all, a context of this is important. Uh, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, and that's because he is uh, writing during the time, uh, immediately leading, leading up to, during and after the exile to Babylon. He's seeing the destruction of Jerusalem. He's watching all that stuff happen, and it, and, uh, um, and it, 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 uh, it kills him. And so he's, he's just agonizing over this. And so that's the context that people have, have continued in uh, disobedience, and particularly the kings have continued in disobedience, in, uh, in disobeying God, breaking that covenant, and it's gone on and on for, for generations and really for centuries. And so the people end up getting driven out of the land, right? They're sent into exile because they have broken this covenant again and again, particularly the Davidic king has done so. And so this is where we read this prophecy, days are coming, right? And there's going to be a new covenant, not, not like the covenant that I made earlier when I took them out of the land of Egypt, that, and they broke that covenant. So we want to notice, first of all, that it's new. It's not like the old covenant that they broke. There's going to be something new about it. Now, there's discussion about what all the new elements are, but I think as we look at it, we can get a basic idea of what is being discussed here, right? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. First, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts which draws us back to that picture of the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19 through 23, and, and all of that story there. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments that are written on these, these blocks of stone. What's the law written on? It's written on stone, external. It's to be brought down. It's to be shown. It's outside of you. But this covenant is going to be different, and the first way it's going to be different is that I will put my law not on stone in a box somewhere, not on display. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So that's new. An external law versus an internal law. He's doing something new, so he's going to write it on their hearts. That's the first big thing. The law is going to be within, written on their hearts. Secondly, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is a promise that's been made before to the nation of Israel, but we're going to see when we look at this new covenant that it is established in an entirely different way. It is secured. It's not something being offered if the other side keeps their deal. This is a guaranteed, secured part of this covenant is that God says, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Next, no longer 
Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. Everyone who's going to be in this covenant will know the Lord. There is no need for one person within this covenant to teach another person within this covenant, know the Lord. Everyone who is in the covenant will know the Lord. And so that's different than what you see going on here. There was a requirement for obedience to this external law. There were consequences when there was disobedience to this external law. But very, very often within this covenant, you would even have a Davidic king who didn't know the Lord. So you have people who are within this covenant. They have not excluded themselves from this old covenant, and yet they don't know the Lord. They need to be taught. They need to be evangelized, though they are within that covenant. And what God is saying here in this place is that that will not be uh, the situation in this new covenant. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's a big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. And then next, uh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All wrapped up in that covenant. Very brief statement with basic elements, uh, uh, the main points there of that covenant. Now, while we're here, uh, let's go to Ezekiel. Keep your, keep your finger. We're not going to leave Jeremiah 31, so keep your finger there. But go to Ezekiel 36. By the way, uh, Jeremiah 31, I believe, is the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase new covenant is used. But when we read uh, Ezekiel uh, 36... We're going to read very similar words, though it's not labeled the same way, but it's referring to the same thing. Uh, we are in Ezekiel 36. I want to read, starting in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God is making a promise there that's very similar to what He does here in Jeremiah chapter 31, saying that He is going to do a thing where He reaches into the heart of his people. He takes out the cold, dead, unresponsive heart of stone and puts in, instead a, a beating, responsive heart of flesh that works, a heart that works towards God. He's going to forgive their sin. He's going to sprinkle them with water. He's going to remove all their uncleanness. He's going to do all of those things. He's going to work in them to cause them to obey. Did you see the language? Of verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, says God to his people. Okay, so we've got very similar language going on in those two places. 
Go back to Jeremiah 31. Uh, let's talk about the elements. We've talked about the elements of the covenants. So I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to fit them all in there. <laughs> uh, parties. Who are the parties of this covenant? God and Israel. God and Israel. What's, what are the promises? What's that? Yeah, all know him, right? I'm going to have to use some shorthand here. Right? The law in the heart. What else we got? Yeah, so the God-people relationship, right? Uh, and what's that? Andy's locked into this. I don't know what everyone else is doing, but Andy's back there answering all the questions. I mean, he likes to win and all, but come on. Forgiveness. Right? All of that wrapped up as the promises, right? Um, what about the stipulations? That's getting pretty small back there, isn't it? What about the stipulations? What are expected? What, what did we see particularly in Ezekiel 36? I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? So we do... There are stipulations, expectations for obedience. What did you see that was different? He's the cause. So we're going to put a huge asterisk right there. God caused obedience. He's going to bring it about. This is part of the work that He does by removing that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. It's part of the work that He does by placing His Spirit within you so that He is working obedience in you. So it's God-caused. That's new. And that's great. That is grace right there. That is grace right there. So the stipulations, hey, obey God, absolutely. And God is at work in us bringing that about. That sounds kind of New Testament. That sounds kind of Ephesians 2. All right? What about the oath sign? If you see it in this passage, you're better at Hebrew than I am because it's not in this passage, okay? But Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? When we, when we go and we proclaim this good news, when we go and proclaim this new covenant, what are we to do with people who believe it? Baptize them, right? So baptism. So that, that oath sign that we're going to see in the New Testament is baptism itself, okay? So we're, we're drawing that from, uh, from the New Testament. The rest of it is right there uh, in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. And so what a new covenant. What a different story than this one. It's new in all kinds of ways. God's active work in the 
heart of his people even to bring about obedience. Better promises indeed. So let's go uh, to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read verses 6 through 13, though I wouldn't really need to because it's a giant quotation from what we just read from Jeremiah 31, but because, uh, because he quotes it, we want to quote it. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Can we agree these are better promises? Yes, those are better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But He finds fault with them when He says, quote, from Jeremiah 31, you'll recognize it, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete? And growing old is ready to vanish away. That's what the New Testament has to say regarding the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Okay, So before we uh, look into the passage uh, a little bit more, before we think in more detail about it, we have to ask a question. Who are the parties? God and Israel. God and Israel. So, question. Are Gentiles included if this is a covenant made with Israel? The language of God in Jeremiah 31, the language of God in Hebrews chapter 8, is that He is making a covenant with Israel. So how can we be including ourselves into this is the question. Does this include us? Are we, are we um, appropriating that for ourselves inappropriately? That's the question. We're grafted in. So open to, to Galatians 3. I've got several verses here I want us to think about on this topic. Right? Because what does it mean to be uh, in Israel? What does it mean to be of Israel? Ultimately, and, and most basically... It means to be a child of Abraham, though it's not all the children of Abraham, because some are excluded, right? We saw with, uh, with Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael's excluded, though he's a child of Abraham, and then 
among Isaac's children, there's Esau and Jacob, and Esau is excluded, and so it's down to Jacob. But it's the children of Abraham, right? So we look at Galatians chapter 3, and Paul is dealing with this question. Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. God foresaw that. So what is the ultimate connection between a child of Abraham, someone who is of Abraham, to be a son of Abraham? What's the defining characteristic? It's not genetics. It's faith. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who is blessed along with Abraham? Who participates in the blessings promised to Abraham? Those who are of faith, according to Paul's language here. A little further down the passage, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. These promises were made to Abraham, and they are great promises. And who gets to participate in those promises? Those who are Christ's. According to Galatians 3, 7, 9, and 29. But we can go even farther. Go to Romans 2. I encourage you to be writing these passages down. They're, they're just verses, but it's really essential to the entire argument of Galatians. Uh, this that I'm saying right now. Romans chapter 2. In verse 29, Paul, how do we identify a Jew? Paul, what is a Jew? Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We get, we get confused and think about this out outward circumcision. Think about this uh, genetic descendancy. If that's even a word, I don't think it is. When the issue here is what is in the heart. The issue here is faith. According to Paul in Galatians 3, according to Paul in Romans 2, and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, great passage. Talking here uh, in Ephesians, he's, he's dealing with these Gentiles and their relationship with Jews. He's been talking earlier in this paragraph about the dividing wall of hostility between the two that there was a, there was a distinction that, that runs all the way down between Jew and Gentile. And you Gentiles, how are you supposed to relate to the Jews? How does it work? How are the Jews supposed to relate to you Gentiles and, and all of that? You who were locked out, you who are on the outside, verse 11, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were out there. You were excluded. You were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were not a part of the nation of Israel. You were excluded. You were on the outs. We could continue reading that whole uh, section there, and I encourage you to do so, but for our uh, purposes right now and for the sake of time, look at verse 19. You Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. By what Christ has done in breaking down that barrier, that dividing wall of hostility, He has created one new people. And we Gentiles who used to be excluded have been included and made citizens of the very commonwealth of Israel. In other words, all who are of faith are Israel, whether they are of Jewish descent or Gentile descent. All who are of faith in Christ, united with Him, are Israel. And so when we think about the words of this new covenant, who are the parties? God and all of those who have faith in Christ, regardless of their background, their genetics, or anything like that. So, are we Gentiles included if this covenant is made with Israel? Yes, we are. Because of the way Paul, particularly in the New Testament, really develops, uh, though others do as well, but Paul really develops this idea that we who were on the outside by faith in Christ are brought in and are members of the nation of Israel. Fellow citizens of the commonwealth of Israel is the language he uses in Ephesians 2. So, that's how we can say it has something to do with us. Uh, we've read the promises of the New Covenant. We've read uh, what God said through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel. Go to Luke chapter 22. We talked about cutting a covenant. We described the bloodshed involved. We, we described the uh, sacrifices and, and everything connected with that and uh, in thinking about the, the cutting, the establishing of a covenant. And we read in the Abrahamic covenant about promises that went beyond Abraham that talked into the future, promises that went even beyond the Mosaic covenant into the future, and even beyond the Davidic covenant, pointing to something greater, something beyond this, these covenants pointing to something future, but it's still just a promise. Till Luke 22. Now starting in verse 14, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
But I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's picturing the sacrifice. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is picturing the cutting of the covenant that is going to happen within hours of when he says this. This is the covenant that we are under. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are calling to mind not just these promises, but the fulfillment of them in Christ Himself. We see pictures, we see shadows, we see parts in all of this back here. We come to Jeremiah 31 and we see the full promise of it, but it's still just a promise hanging out there until it's cut in Christ. His body broken, His blood spilt, His blood of the new covenant which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is our covenant. Folks, this is the covenant of grace that we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. This is the covenant whereby credit for obedience to God is given to us so that we are declared righteous, so that we have our sins forgiven. And so that He even does that work in our hearts where He takes out the heart of stone, puts a heart of flesh, puts His Spirit within us, write His writes His law within our hearts so that He causes us to obey. All of that He's accomplished for us. That is the new covenant. That's very different than saying, here is an excellent law, get to it. It's accomplished for us and given to us. That is the new covenant. That is the covenant of grace for us. And so, Last passage we're going to look at, Romans chapter 5. We've been here before. All roads lead to Romans. And they ought to. I'm going to just read through. I encourage you. You want to be encouraged in Christ. Dwell in Romans 5 and you will be encouraged. I'm just going to hit the highlights for us. In light of what we've talked about, in light of the conception of a completed covenant of works, the credit for that given to us so that it is ours, We read in verse 15, The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Free gift. Verse 16, The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He does it, we get the benefit. Verse 18, One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of that for us. Christ's righteousness. So, this is the covenant that we live under and truly live. This is the covenant that governs Christ's kingdom. This is where you and I find ourselves.
promised great and glorious promises. These were good promises. These were better promises, and they are ours right now by faith in Christ. There is more to come, of course. We experience this salvation in a certain way right now. We still have the presence of sin. We still have all of that that we deal with, and that will all be dealt with one day, but we have a foretaste of it even now. Conclusion. Why does covenant theology matter? This is where I give myself five minutes to wrap up (laughs) 13 weeks of teaching. Why does covenant theology matter? First of all, covenant theology is like a foundation. It's like a foundation to a building. It can be compared to a foundation of a building. It's at, it, it absolutely must be laid properly, but it isn't usually seen. Nevertheless, the shape and the, and the stability and the structure it gives to the building are all important. But it's usually not what you look at when you look at a building. Unless you're a builder, unless you're in the process of designing or you've built your own house or something like that, or you might notice, oh, look at that stem wall. It does this and that. Or, oh, that's a slab floor. And that. You, you might think in those terms, the rest of us don't. We open the door and walk in. Right? We don't think of that stuff. You don't normally talk about it. You don't normally think about it. But it's got to be laid straight. It's got to be understood. I remember when uh, my dad and my grandfather and and us kids as much as we could, we're helping to build a second story onto uh, the first story of the back room of our house. And turns out, when they got to working on that second story, that the first story was not square. Yes. <laughs> my, dad, my dad and my grandpa were pulling out their hair trying to figure out how it is they're going to build a square. Because they're, they're not going to build out a square. You know that's not going to happen, right? So they, how are they going to build square on top of something that's not square? Because the foundation... And what they were building on was not square, and they were having to figure out after the fact how they were going to straighten that up. And if you know what to look for, you can see how they did it, even now all these years later, right? But that foundation is all important, but it's not normally what you spend your time talking about. Someone who knows what to look for can look and see, oh, that, that, something wrong with that foundation. That, that, that room is, is out of square, right? Someone who knows what they're looking for can see that kind of stuff. But you don't spend your time talking about it. So, why do I say that? Because we're not going to preach a ton of sermons on covenant theology. It's not the point. This is the point. What Christ has done for us. But you who have spent some time looking at the foundation, examining a foundation, you'll see it and you'll hear it, though we're not going to do a a preaching series um, like we've done here in in the evening. That's not going to be the main service uh, in, the, in the morning, though it's there and you'll be able to see it and you'll be able to appreciate all the, all the more greatly as you're reading Scripture and you say, oh, I know what Paul's talking about. I see what he did there. He's developing these exact themes. And so though we don't uh, lead with covenant theology, that's not, that's not our, our goal in life to preach covenant theology, yet it undergirds and establishes a foundation that, that helps us make Christ clear to people. Make clear what He has done for us. That we preach the gospel and, and underneath it, uh, in, in, in giving shape to it, as Scripture has given shape to it, we see covenant theology. I started off the series 
I'm sure you all have this list memorized because that's the way you are, right? Reasons why covenant theology matters. And I've just copied the same list to give now at the end, and I think we can have a better appreciation for it. Number one, it helps us see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. We're not lost, we're not confused when we open to Exodus, Deuteronomy, some minor prophet. We understand what God was doing in the nation of Israel. We understand why the people were in danger of being kicked out of the land. We understand what that means for us. We understand what it is that Christ has accomplished for us so that we don't have that same stipulation that, yeah, God made big promises to Abraham, but we can exclude ourselves. We understand that the, 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 the promises that have been made to us are greater and Christ has accomplished them. Accomplished them for us. Secondly, it helps us to understand the flow of redemptive history. That the Old Covenant brings forth the nation of Israel. Israel brings forth the Messiah. The Messiah brings forth the New Covenant by which we are saved. Helps us to understand the flow of redemptive history in Scripture. I saw someone, I'm out of time, but oh well. Someone the other day arguing against Christianity because it said um, things like you can't, uh, did, your, your religion says that, that you can't uh, mix different kinds of uh, fabric uh, together in your, in your clothing. So obviously your religion's dumb. That was the argument. Well, if you understand redemptive history and you understand what's going on, you, you, you understand that that's an aspect of this right here. And this right here, the nation of Israel has brought forth the Messiah who's brought forth our salvation under the new covenant. So it's, it's not an argument against us that, that, uh, that at some point along this story, they couldn't mix different kinds of fabric. We understand redemptive history much better. Point number three helps us make sense of the federal headship of Adam and of Christ. Boy, does that ever help. Number four, helps us make sense of the presence of law and gospel in the Bible. How to relate the two together and how they relate to us. It lays the foundation for us to think in terms of law and gospel. We've not majored on that in this discussion of covenant theology, but the foundation is laid for understanding God's law, God's requirement, and us realizing, like the nation of Israel uh, should have realized and did, I can't do this. I must have the Messiah, the one promised. Number three, uh, it helps make sense of the federal headship of Adam and of Christ. Number four, law and gospel. And number five, and this is, this is where we're going to land. Helps us understand the nature of our relationship with our God. Giving us assurance. Forming our identity as the people of God. And giving us right motives for obedience. Yes. Giving us assurance, forming our identity as the people of God,
and giving us right motives for obedience. So because of all this, we have an understanding of, of where we stand with God and why we stand there. We are not saved by grace, but keep ourselves in by our faithfulness. That will kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it will kill your kids. We have been saved by Christ. His completed work, He who has obeyed the Father in every requirement, including going to the place of paying the penalty for your sin and mine because we aren't obedient. Bore the fullness of God's wrath for my sin in His body on the tree. By faith in Christ, I get to be included in Him, which we've studied. God is the one who draws us to Himself. He's the one who takes out that heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh. He puts His Spirit within us, calls us to Himself, makes us His own, puts us at peace with Him so that He is our God and we are His people, so that we have right standing with Him. And then He calls us to obedience. And He works that obedience in us by His Spirit. What, what assurance is there in that? There is every assurance in that. Not because I'm good at upholding my end of the deal, but because Jesus has done it. He has finished it. And He is even now working in us by His Spirit in these aspects of uh, when we look at the law and we see what, what we are to do, how we are to obey, He works in us, empowers us by His Spirit. Even the obedience that we see in our lives is, is a result of His gracious work. And so we have assurance, we have peace, we have our identity as the people of God and right motives in obeying Him. That's covenant theology very, very briefly. Very briefly. And I hope that's helpful. It's been helpful to me to study through it and kind of have to get my uh, thoughts straight on it. But there is, there is a solid foundation right here upon which we will build. So I appreciate you all uh, being here throughout the course of this semester and studying through things that are new to us and, and challenging in, in various ways. Uh, but we together have been laying a foundation that, that, will, that will help us when we understand our own Bible reading, will help us when we understand Scripture teaching, how we think about the gospel, how we think about Christ, how we think about ourselves in Christ, how we think about those who are not in Christ, how we think about Old Testament, New Testament, and on and on and on. We have that structure built. We have that foundation laid. And it's, uh, it's my hope and it's, a, and it's our prayer that it will be an encouragement, that it will be useful and productive in, in continuing to build on top of it, continuing to understand God's word and what it means for us, particularly Jesus and what he's done. We can't talk about that enough. Let's pray. Father, we have rushed through big topics. It, it, I don't think it's been too fast, but it's been fast 
we've wanted to slow down and, and dig into um, different aspects of this. There are many passages that we've, we've read and we would rather study them for uh, days and weeks. But as we've done this, we've seen uh, broad outlines of the structure that you give to Scripture and how it is that you have brought about this salvation that we have in Christ, how it is that you have reconciled poor sinners like us who uh, were uh, rebellious and, and, uh, and certainly undeserving. And yet you have drawn us to yourself. You have given us this eternal life in Christ. You have made us your own children. You've placed your spirit within us. You've placed your law within us. You've taken out that heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh instead. You work in us the very motivation <clears throat> for our own sanctification, the empowering by your Spirit of our own sanctification. All of this is of you. May we be more and more grateful for that. May we understand your word better. And may we understand what it is you have done for us in Christ all the better. Bless us, we pray. You already have. In Jesus' name, amen.